0: The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, as we consider the suffering of your Son this morning, we come before you to lift up praise for sending your Son, for giving your Son, and for your Son's willing submission to you. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering and for dying on that cross. Thank you for the deliverance that it brings. Thank you for the new covenant that it brings. Thank you for being willing to embrace such a horrific fate. For God's glory and submission to your Father's will and for our good. We praise you for your sacrifice. We praise you for your suffering. We praise you for your love. We praise you for what it means. And I pray, Father, that as we get a glimpse of your Son today, as we see our suffering King in your Word, I pray that you would move us towards you in love, that you would fill our hearts with worship, that they would overflow with gratitude that can't be quantified, And that would lead us to follow in your footsteps too. All of this, Father, we know we can't do apart from the power of your Spirit. So by your Spirit, help me to make your word plain. Help me to reveal Jesus through this passage and help us together to behold him, to be attentive, to understand what your word means, to appreciate Luke's distinctive portrayal of Jesus' suffering and to be rightly moved by it, to be rightly impacted and transformed by it. Please, Father, do that by your Spirit during this time for your glory and for our sakes. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Crosses have become a common icon in our culture. It's not uncommon to see crosses on church buildings. You see them on t-shirts. You see people wearing crosses around their necks as a form of jewelry. Maybe you're wearing one right now. 2,000 years ago, that would have been a very strange, even grotesque thing to see. It'd be, for us, somewhat akin to seeing statues of an electric chair on places of worship. Or people wearing a golden electric chair, piece of jewelry around their neck. Back then, the cross would have been even more so. It was an icon of execution. It was an icon, an instrument of humiliation and torture and death. What happened? How did such a vile icon become so culturally and theologically significant? It all has to do with a particular man who died, On a cross. And that man is the man that we've experienced together now over the past five weeks in the Gospel of Luke. He's the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins. He's the true friend of sinners. He's the fisher of men. He's the Son of God, Messiah and Savior, born on Christmas Day. He's the great teacher, and he's the King, as we'll see today, who suffered and died on a Roman cross. The Gospel accounts as ancient biographies of Jesus dedicate considerable space to the events leading up to Jesus' death. Indeed, one of the most significant parts of the life of Jesus was his death. And each Gospel writer tells the story of Jesus' passion differently. Passion in the older sense of of the word meaning suffering. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been doing something different. We normally work through a book of the Bible expositionally, chapter by chapter, passage by passage. This has been a topical series. We've been looking together at the Gospel of Luke, trying to paint a portrait of Jesus for us, trying to experience Jesus in Luke's Gospel. And today our goal is the same. We want to know Jesus through Luke's account of his passion. In Luke, Jesus is the king who suffered unjustly under the forces of darkness, for his people's deliverance and a new covenant. That's the big idea of Luke's passion narrative. Jesus is the king who suffered unjustly under the forces of darkness for his people's deliverance and a new covenant. Let's dive down together into the very deep waters of the passion story and swim around for answers to three questions. Who attacked the king? Why did the king suffer And how did the king suffer? We want to know the who, the why, and the how of Jesus' suffering. First, who was responsible for the king's suffering? It's a more complicated question than you might think. Point number one, who attacked the king? In Luke's gospel, he's framed his material around Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That's chapters 4 through 9. His journey to Jerusalem, that's chapters 9 through 19. And then his ministry and suffering in Jerusalem, chapters 19 through 23. Jerusalem, in Luke's book, is Jesus' city of destiny. And when Jesus was in Jerusalem, Luke says in chapter 19, verse 47, Every day Jesus was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words." The religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. Jesus had confronted their sin and hypocrisy. He taught against their customs. He was a threat to their leadership, or at least so they thought. And maybe they were fearful that his messianic movement could lead to a confrontation with the Roman Empire. Fast forward to chapter 22, verse 1. Luke says, Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. They're constantly on the lookout now for a way to kill him. The only problem is how. See, it says they were afraid of the people. And as 1948 said, all the people hung on his words. Jesus was viewed positively by the people, and arresting Jesus would be quite a scene. There would be backlash, perhaps even a riot. If only they had a way to do this offstage, out of the public eye. Verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Judas, one of Jesus' own, one of the 12 disciples, the group that was closest to him, that followed him throughout his ministry, Judas decides to betray his master and profit financially from the arrangement. He goes to the chief priest and he says, you want to get Jesus alone? I can do that for you. Judas is is exactly what they needed. He's part of Jesus' inner circle. He's intimately familiar with his whereabouts, and he can find them the opportunity they're looking for. They're delighted to say, oh, Judas, you saved us. That's all we need. Now now we can finally stop this. We can finally end this. But notice there's another character in the scene that we must not miss. Verse 3 says, Satan entered Judas. Judas satan that's the greek transliteration of the hebrew word meaning adversary this is of course the arch demon the adversary of god's people this is the ancient serpent who deceived eve back in the garden it's the one who put righteous Job to the test in the old testament it's the one who tempted the messiah at the beginning of his ministry and here he's the one that enters judas now When we think about demonic influence like this, it's more appropriate biblically to speak in terms of influence rather than possession. Influence can vary in degrees and forms. Here Judas, though, is not just demonically influenced. He's satanically influenced. Terrifying. Terrifying. The religious leaders aren't the only ones after Jesus. When we pull back the curtain, we see cosmic forces of darkness at work. Jesus reveals as much when he says to Peter in verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. The dragon wants to shake you all in a sieve. He wants to test your faithfulness and your loyalty to me. And boy, would this testing be severe. Peter, who had boldly proclaimed that he was ready to go to prison and death with Jesus in a matter of hours, would deny knowing him three times. The opportunity that Judas and the religious leaders were looking for, they found when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. He stayed there every night after teaching in the temple. It was very close to the city. And after celebrating the Passover meal together, we read in verse 39, Luke chapter 22, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. The storm is coming. Jesus knows it. He calls his followers to pray. They need to prepare for what lies ahead. And this was how to do it. Pray, he says. Call out to God. Plead with him to keep you from stumbling when you're tested, when you're shaken by the devil himself. Luke highlights prayer throughout his gospel. We find people praying at many significant points in his story. And the same thing is here. Don't let that be missed on you. Verse 41, Then Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. People normally prayed while they were standing. But Jesus kneels down. It shows his humility before God. Or maybe the earnestness of his prayer. This is the moment where Jesus wrestles with his face, with with his fate. His full humanity is on display. And he speaks to God as his father. The son asks his father to remove this dreadful cup of suffering from his hands. But he says, if you, father, will for me to drink it, I will drink it. Your will be done. Wow. Submission. Dedication to the Father's will. Jesus says, there's nothing you want that I won't do. And so Jesus accepts his destiny. Luke makes it clear that the king's suffering was part of God's plan in history. There was a a divine necessity to this cup. During his last Passover supper with the disciples in the same chapter, Jesus said in verse 22, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. His suffering was decreed by God. Verse 37, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching his fulfillment. His suffering was prophesied by God in the Old Testament, and it must be fulfilled. In verse 42, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. His suffering was the will of God. Of the Father. Now, if you keep reading in your Bible, many of you are going to see verses 43 through 44 where it talks about an angel visiting Jesus and his sweat being like drops of blood falling to the ground. And maybe this will be surprising to you because it's so familiar to us, but it's very unlikely, actually, that these verses were originally part of Luke's gospel. And they're not found in any of the other gospels either, uh, for that matter. Uh, verse 45, though, when, he, when Jesus rose from prayer... And went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Perhaps from the things that Jesus had said that night at dinner about how his blood would be poured out, or about how one of them would be a traitor, or about how Peter would deny him, for example. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Sleeping? That's no way to prepare for a trial. You don't, walk, you don't want to walk into a time of testing unprayed. There's an important lesson for us here. Jesus tells them to pray that they won't stumble when they're tested. Then he goes off and prays, and then he tells them the same thing again. That's the application for Luke's readers. Pray so that you can stand strong in temptation. But it's too late for the disciples now. And perhaps they stumble more as a result of this. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. Judas, his disciple, former disciple, is in the front. He's showing them the way to Jesus. He got the religious leaders the opportunity they were looking for away from the people. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Verse 48, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The word kiss is emphasized. Kissing was a way of, of greeting, but it may have specifically been a way, an affectionate way of greeting. Family members and friends greeted each other with kisses. Disciples may have greeted their masters with kisses. And here Judas attempts to kiss Jesus, but for him it's a vile act of hypocrisy. Judas was a close friend of Jesus. Just hours ago, they were enjoying sweet, intimate fellowship together around a holiday table. And now he's here to hand his master over to the people who want to kill him. And it's not just a friend that Judas is betraying. It's the son of man. Judas betrays his master, his friend, and the son of man Amazing. Verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? They didn't wait for an answer. Verse 50, one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. He tells his disciples, don't fight back. Don't defend me. Instead, he gives himself over to them. As one translation puts it, he says, Let them have their way. And then he touched the man's ear and healed him. The great rabbi who we saw last week teaching to love, the one who taught us to love our enemies, he practices what he preaches. Verse 52 Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? I'm not a dangerous criminal. I'm not a robber. 53, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Other translations say, this is your hour and the dominion of darkness, or this is your hour and that of the power of darkness. Yes, this arrest was taking place under the cover of darkness, but the night symbolizes something deeper. This is the darkness's moment. The forces of darkness. Judas, the religious leaders, Satan, this is their time. The forces of darkness, earthly and heavenly, this is their time. This is when blindness, ignorance, and evil reign. This is the climactic moment in human history Foretold all the way back in Genesis 3, when the ancient serpent rears his ugly head to strike the heel of the son of Eve. So let's answer our first question, who attacks Jesus? Who is responsible for the king's suffering? Answer, the forces of darkness. But of course, there's more to the story than that. Because as we saw on the Mount of Oz, what transpires is the sovereign will of God. And Jesus voluntarily submits to it. He steps into the evil night to be swallowed up by it. It reminds me of the scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, where the lion, Aslan, who represents Jesus for Lewis, he sets Edmund free by surrendering himself to the wicked white witch. Aslan's the master of the situation. He's the powerful lion that could devour the witch and her army if he wants to. But he gives himself over to her. He lets her vile servants bind him. He lets them shave his mane. He lets her pierce him with her dagger. God is the master of the situation. Jesus is a powerful lion that could devour his foes but he voluntarily surrenders himself to the darkness. He lets evil have its way with him. Verse 44, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Let me ask you something before we move on. Do you think the forces of darkness that attacked the king have ceased their attack on the king? Don't be fooled. The forces of darkness continue to attack the king and his people. The question for you, of course, is how can you withstand it? Do what Jesus told his disciples. Verse 46, pray so that you will not fall into temptation. You need to pray that God would enable you to stand. If you're not praying, you are not ready for the darkness to come against you. You're not well equipped for the trials that await, for the trials maybe that you're even facing right now. Perhaps you're currently being attacked and you're failing, but you don't even know it because you are so ill-prepared. You're so under-prayed. Don't be a fool. Pray, pray, pray. So who attacked the king? The forces of darkness, humanly and heavenly. They attacked him then, they attack him now, and they will attack you too. So pray like there's no tomorrow. Now in Jesus' case, it was the Father's will for him to die. Why was that? Why was this decreed by God? Why was this prophesied to? Point number two, why the king suffered. According to Luke's gospel, why did the king suffer? Luke develops more than one reason in his two volume work. One is that Jesus suffered and died as a righteous martyr, similar to prophets before him. As Stephen said to the Sanhedrin in Acts 7 Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. But Jesus' death was different. This was not just another instance of God's stiff-necked people rejecting God's servant. It wasn't less than that for Luke, but it is more. Another reason is that Jesus' suffering and death set the stage for his resurrection and exaltation. But Jesus' death is also more than just a stepping stone to glory. It's not less than that for Luke, but it is more. For Luke, Jesus' death is connected to our salvation. You say, yes, of course, I know that. Jesus' death atones for our sins. It pays for our sins. And that's correct. But it's interesting because in Luke and Acts, Luke never explicitly describes Jesus' death in terms of atonement. Mark does in his gospel. Mark 10.45, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew does in his gospel, Matthew 26, 28. Jesus says his blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But while atonement may be implied in what Luke says, Luke never says those things explicitly. And that's okay. The New Testament writers, they don't, they don't all have to highlight the saving significance of Jesus' death in the same way. That said, as with Matthew and Mark, part of how Luke draws out the meaning of Jesus' death is his story of the last Passover supper that he celebrated with his disciples. The Passover festival, it was a celebration of the great saving work of God in the Old Testament. It was a celebration of the Exodus, which had happened 1,200 to 1,500 years before Jesus was ever born. Israel, the people of God, had been oppressed and enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Then God acted mightily to deliver his people by afflicting the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues. He turned their water into blood. He sent frogs and gnats and flies. He killed their livestock. He gave them festering boils. He sent hail and locusts and covered Egypt in darkness. But you know the story. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He would not let God's people go. And then God sent the tenth and final plague, the worst of them all. He passed through Egypt to take the life of each firstborn son. But God told his people to slaughter a lamb and eat a meal that could be quickly prepared since they were to be ready to depart from Egypt right away. The fast food would consist of roasting their lamb and eating it along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. For all those who smeared the blood the sacrificed lamb on their door frames, God promised to pass over Their home. Sure enough, the death of the firstborn was the final blow for Pharaoh. He let God's people go, and the Egyptians urged them to leave in haste. God commanded Israel to commemorate their deliverance from oppression and bondage in Egypt with two annual festivals, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, with one right before the other. And during Passover, the Jews would sacrifice a lamb, and they ate the same elements of the Passover meal, using the meal to represent God's saving work to themselves. This festival occurred in March or April, using our calendars. And Jesus, the king who was arrested and tried and killed, was killed on Passover. All of this happened on the day of Passover. But before his arrest, Luke narrates how the king ate the Passover meal with his disciples and what has famously become what we call the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples are in a large furnished guest room, which they either procured procure, uh, procure through Jesus' prophetic knowledge or his prearrangement of things. And you can picture the scene. During normal meals, they would sit and eat, but at a, at, a fe- at a festival like this, they would recline on pillows on their sides around a table that was low to the ground. You can see the candles in the room. You can see Jesus surrounded by his disciples, these men that he loved so much, and the air in the room it has the feel of a holiday to it. In verse fourteen, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Maybe Jesus wasn't sure if he would make it this long before suffering and dying. He really wanted to eat this Passover with them before he died. And now he can. Why? Well, because he knows that it'll be his last. He's looking around. He's seeing the faces of these men who are so special to him. And he knows this won't happen again. At least for a long while. This is a special occasion for fellowship with them, for teaching them. And you can imagine how this might be an emotional moment for Jesus. Imagine if you knew that you were going to die soon. And you just wanted one more thanksgiving with your family you didn't know if you were going to make it there you just you really wanted one more thanksgiving with them before you died and then you get it what kind of emotion would that fill you with at the holiday for jesus you know it's not he knows it's not the end the end has the passover meal this celebration of salvation it prefigured the end time banquet in the kingdom of God. Isaiah spoke of it in in, in chapter 25 of his book, saying that on this mountain, on Zion, Yahweh Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. He will swallow up death forever. When the kingdom is consummated, they will feast again together in Zion. At that time, the Passover meal probably followed a traditional flow of dishes and at least three ritual cups of wine. Various prayers of thanksgiving or blessing to God were offered up at different points in the celebration, sometimes over a specific element of the meal. And they would also sing the Hillel or praise psalms. That was Psalms 113 to 118. The first part of the, of the songs were sung before the main dishes in the second cup, and the final part was sung after the meal. It may have also been the head's responsibility to interpret certain elements of the meal. Referring to either the first or second ritual cup in Luke 22, Luke says, verse 17, after taking the cup, Jesus gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, he reiterates the finality of this event. This is the last time he will drink with these men before they drink again together in Zion. Verse 19, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The unleavened bread at the Passover meal is reinterpreted by Jesus to signify his body. And here, a body probably doesn't just mean flesh and bones but his whole self. He is the bread. The bread represents him. And notice Jesus says, I am given for you, speaking to his disciples, I'm given for you. What is he talking about? Well, his death is probably in view here, given the parallel to what he says about the cup, and that's certainly referring to his death. Perhaps Jesus is given in the sense that you could give an offering, that you could give a sacrifice. And then maybe striking a note of farewell, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Just as they ate the unleavened bread as a way of representing to themselves their salvation from Egypt, now they're to eat the bread as a way of representing Jesus to themselves. This was to be a practice, a regular way of remembering, just like Passover was a regular way of remembering The Exodus. It's amazing. Two thousand years later, the disciples of Jesus are still practicing this. We do it every week. We'll do it again this morning. We call it the Lord's Supper or Communion. And how incredible to trace the rich heritage of this tradition all the way back to Jesus' last Passover meal with his disciples on the night of his death. What does Luke reveal about Jesus' death here? The bread which represents the king's body given for his disciples in death is the unleavened bread of the Passover meal. And it's this Passover context, this celebration of salvation that seems to color Jesus' death with saving significance. Verse 20, in the same way after the supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you jesus reinterpreted the bread now he reinterprets the third cup of the passover meal the cup he says symbolizes the new covenant notice in luke it's not specifically his blood that it symbolizes it's the new covenant which is inaugurated in his blood what is a covenant it's important to understand what a covenant is if you want to understand the bible covenants are arrangements where at least one party has obligations to another, Marriage covenants are a common example of that today. You both solemnly promise to love each other as husband and wife. For better or for worse, until death do you part, right? Well, after God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, he made a covenant with his people through Moses on Mount Sinai. We often call this the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. And the covenant worked like this. He said, Israel, if you keep my law, you'll be my treasured possession. Of all the nations, you'll be my people. Obedience would result in blessings. Disobedience would result in curses. This covenant was confirmed in Exodus 24 and Moses directed young men to make different kinds of offerings and he took half the blood from sacrificed animals and splashed it against the altar. And then verse 7 he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded by saying we will do everything Yahweh has said. We will obey. And then he took the other half of the blood and sprinkled it. On the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Exodus 24, verse 8. The old covenant between God and his people was confirmed with the blood of sacrificial animals. Now, some Jews, at least later on, understood the sacrifice as having some kind of atoning significance. It's not clear if the author of Exodus saw it that way or if Luke saw it that way, but nonetheless, this sacrificial blood was part of the ritual that sealed the pact, so to speak. Of course, you know the story of Israel. They were unfaithful to the Mosaic Covenant, and they would eventually be exiled from their land in judgment. But God promised to make a new covenant with his people. He said to Jeremiah 31, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. This is the covenant I I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. During that last Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus holds up the third cup and he says, this cup symbolizes the new covenant. Initiated not with the blood of animals, but with my own blood. With his own life, in fact. P.S. Leviticus 17 says that the life of every creature is its blood. Wow. Jesus' blood, Jesus' life would be what inaugurates the new covenant. But notice, Jesus says that the cup would be poured out. The pouring out of blood or the shedding of blood meant death. It's Jesus' death that's in view here. It's his death on the cross that would be the initiatory sacrifice of the new covenant. His death will confirm, it will seal the new covenant for his disciples. Now, Luke doesn't flush out the details of how Jesus' death does this, of how it inaugurates the new covenant, he, but he reveals that it does. And atonement may be implied. There's a possible allusion here to Isaiah 53, which is a verse that's uh, verse 12, it's partially mentioned later in the passage, where it says, The servant of Yahweh poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What's the big picture? When we step back and look at Jesus' final day, we can ask who attacked the king. The forces of darkness attacked him. But this was God's will, and Jesus accepted it. And we can ask why was this God's will. And we can look to the Passover meal. We see Jesus reinterpreted Israel's celebration of salvation around his death. That means his future suffering has saving significance for God's people. It's part of how they're delivered. And it's his death that initiates a new and better covenant. The application point for you is easy. We still celebrate communion today. We're gonna celebrate it in a little bit. And when we take communion... I want you to try to feel the connection to the Passover festival. Hear the celebration of God's deliverance reverberating through the elements which relate to his death. Rejoice in the new covenant symbolized by the cup. And just as the Passover meal represented the Exodus to them, let our meal today represent Jesus to you. Luke portrays Jesus as the suffering Messiah. We've seen who who was responsible for his suffering. We've seen why he suffered. Now we want to ask how he suffered. What happened to Jesus? Point number three, how the king suffered. Throughout Luke's account of Jesus' suffering, there is one resounding gong that rings loud and clear. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent. His persecution is unjust. His execution is unjust. Jesus is an innocent sufferer. He is the righteous martyr. And the story is also just drenched with irony. That on the one hand is profound and on the other hand is very disturbing. After Jesus' chief disciple Peter denies him three times, the story continues in verse 63. It says, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. The innocent man, mocked, reviled, beaten. And the irony, Jesus is in fact a prophet, the greatest prophet of God. Verse 66, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. This is the Sanhedrin. It's the Jewish ruling body that handled internal Jewish affairs. 71 members consisting of chief priests, teachers, and elders. The high priest was their president. And Jesus here, he may have been brought in to the hall of hewn stone, their typical meeting place in the temple. And the council is sitting there in a semicircle, with the high priest in the middle, and, interro- and they start interrogating Jesus. They focus in on his identity. Verse 67, If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us, are you the anointed one, the prophesied heir to David's throne that will deliver God's people? Their expectations of the Messiah's mission focus more on immediate earthly liberation in an earthly kingdom. It was not the same as Jesus' Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. He knows that answering them or discussing this with them is useless. And then he says something profound. Verse 69 But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. He takes the title that he likes to use for himself from Daniel 7, the Son of Man, that heavenly figure who receives kingship over God's people, and he combines it with Psalm 110, where David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus says, from now on, I, the Son of Man, will be seated at God's right hand, reigning. This is the imminent future. And in Luke's sequel to his gospel, this is exactly what Stephen the martyr sees in Acts 7. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God as he's about to die. The irony, Jesus is being judged by the very people he will judge. In light of what Jesus just claimed, verse 70, they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? Remember, they mean Son of God in the Old Testament, kingly sense. The king was the Son of God. The king was the one adopted to a father-son relationship with God. Their question, of course, is not sincere. They're looking for something to charge Jesus with. Jesus replied, You say that I am. He affirms it, but it's a qualified affirmation. He's saying that's how you put it, that's how you say it, emphasis is on the you, and yes I am, but that's not how I'd say it. Their idea of what it meant to be the Son of God, what it meant for Jesus to be the King, was not the exact same as what Jesus meant by it, however it wasn't completely false. Verse 71, then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. They feel like they got what they wanted. They, they have a basis for a charge against Jesus. The irony the titles they want him to claim to condemn him are who he actually is the Messiah, the Son of God. Sanhedrin want Jesus dead, but they don't have the power to exercise capital punishment. So verse 1 of 23, the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. He is perhaps now the most famous Roman governor in human history because of what happens next. Even though he is normally located in Caesarea, he was here in Jerusalem for the Passover probably. And then in verse 2, the Sanhedrin began to accuse him saying, we have found this man, this man's derogatory, subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar And he claims to be a Messiah, a king. They accuse Jesus of subverting the nation, leading the people astray. Maybe this has to do with Jesus' critiquing of the religious leaders and their customs. And then they accuse Jesus of opposing the payment of taxes. This we know is blatantly false. Jesus taught in Luke 20, 25, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. But they accuse him of it anyway. And then they accuse Jesus of claiming to be a king, a political revolutionary. All these accusations were pertinent to Pilate. He was responsible for collecting taxes. He was responsible for maintaining order, which the Romans took very seriously, sometimes even at the expense of justice. But Luke narrates Pilate's interrogation of Jesus' claim to kingship. Verse three, so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Same kind of guarded affirmation again. That's how you put it. And yes, I am, but I'd put it differently. Verse 4, then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Jesus is innocent. Verse 5, but they insisted. They kept pressing him persistently. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Pilate discovers that Jesus was under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, the Roman client ruler of Galilee. And so he just punched the ball to him. He's trying to get this situation out of his hands. Herod was also probably in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he was better versed in Jewish religion and law than Pilate was. And so he sends Jesus off to Herod. He plies him with many questions, but Jesus is silent before him. He doesn't respond. And then Herod and the soldiers, they mock him, they ridicule him, they dress him in an elegant robe, perhaps to insult him for claiming to be a king. And they send him right back to Pilate. Then, verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Jesus is innocent. According to Herod, who was familiar with Jewish customs, Jesus is innocent, according to Pilate, the second time now. Pilate says he'll release Jesus, but perhaps to appease the Jews, he'll chastise Jesus first. He'll have Jesus scourged with whips that were fitted with sharp objects to cut his skin as he was struck. Verse 18 But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison. For an insurrection in the city and for murder. Pilate has an angry mob on his hands now. The whole crowd now is calling out for Jesus' death, which is odd because in Luke's gospel there's a positive portrayal of the people towards Jesus, but maybe there's something of a mob mentality at work here. Now, there was a custom at Passover of granting a prisoner freedom, hence the demand for Barabbas, but it's strange why that comes up here. It's, it's difficult to tell. Because Jesus was innocent. He should have been released anyway. But maybe since the people were convinced he was guilty, maybe this was a tactic on Pilate's part. Maybe he was trying to get them to use that custom for Jesus. But the crowd will have none of it. They instead shout back at him together, Rid this man, this man from the earth. Release Barabbas to us. The irony, the one falsely accused of being a revolutionary is traded for one who is actually a revolutionary. The righteous one is exchanged for a murderer. Verse 20, Wanting to release them, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished... And then release him. Jesus is innocent, according to Pilate, third time now. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. What was it that persuaded Pilate? It wasn't new evidence. It wasn't a compelling legal argument against Jesus. It was their loud shouts. Pilate cares about stability. He cares about order. He cares about his career. His decision is one of political expediency. But notice how the innocence of Jesus is maintained. He is never pronounced guilty. He is never sentenced to death for a particular charge. He is just surrendered to their will. He's crucified because that's what they want. Luke makes it clear that Pilate wanted to release Jesus. Pilate, of course, is not completely exonerated from the role he played. He knowingly gave an innocent man over to crucifixion. He's part of the forces of darkness. But according to Luke, the greater culpability lies with the people of God. And Luke develops their ignorance more in the book of Acts, but they are still responsible israel persecuted and killed the prophets now they persecute and kill the son of god fast forward to verse 32 we read that two other men both criminals were also led out with jesus to be executed and when they came to the place called the skull they crucified him there along with the criminals one on his right and the other on his left the place was called the skull probably because it was a mound or a hill coming out of the ground that may have resembled a head on top of a body. The skull, by the way, it translates to the Latin word that gives us Calvary. When it says they crucified Jesus, the original audience that Luke's writing to you would have understood what that meant. I want you to listen to how one Bible dictionary explains crucifixion. And as you're listening, I want you to try to picture somebody in your mind that you care about, that you love. Maybe a parent, maybe a sibling or a child. Pick a person. I might imagine my wife, Sarah. And I want you to to try to, to see how you would feel if you saw somebody going through this. Crucifixion was, quote, the most painful and degrading form of capital punishment in the ancient world. A person crucified in Jesus' day was first of all scourged beaten with a whip consisting of thongs with pieces of metal or bone attached to the end, or at least flogged until the blood flowed. This was not done just out of cruelty, but was designed to hasten death and lessen the terrible ordeal. After the beating, the victim was forced to bear the crossbeam to the execution site in order to signify that life was already over and to break the will to live. In Jesus' case, someone else was seized to carry his cross Perhaps because his beating was so severe, or because he was so exhausted from the sleeplessness and from all that had happened that Passover. Continuing on, a tablet detailing the crime was often placed around the criminal's neck and then fastened to the cross. At the site, the prisoner was often tied, the normal method, or nailed, if a quicker death was desired, to the crossbeam. Jesus was nailed to this cross. The nail would be driven through the wrist rather than the palm since the smaller bones of the hand could not support the weight of the body. The beam with the body was then lifted and tied to the already affixed upright pole, and pins or a small wooden block was placed halfway up to provide a seat for the body, lest the nails tear open the wounds or the ropes force the arms from their sockets. Finally, the feet were tied or nailed to the post. Death was caused by the loss of blood circulation and coronary failure. Especially if the victims were tied, it could take days of hideous pain as the extremities slowly turned gangrenous. So often the soldiers would break the victim's legs with a club, causing massive shock and a quick death. Such deaths were usually done in public places. Crucifixion was a punishment for slaves, for bandits, for revolutionaries. And here is Jesus, the King. Crucified between two criminals. The prophecy he mentioned over at the Passover meal has been fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 34, it's a very famous verse, but it also is questionable whether it's actually part of Luke's gospel. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. If this belongs in Luke, it would be another instance of Jesus' incredible love for his enemies, just like he had healed the servant's ear. The latter part of the verse is not doubted. It says in verse 34, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. You heard Psalm 22 read earlier. That's the psalm where the psalmist feels forsaken by God. And in verse 18 says, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of suffering at the hands of his enemies. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. Notice the people aren't acting the same as the rulers. The rulers said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Save yourself, Jesus. Verse 36, The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, perhaps to sustain him in his suffering longer, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Save yourself, Jesus. And then there was a written notice above him, which read, verse 38, this is the king of the Jews. That was his charge. Oh, the irony again. Because this is the king of the Jews. 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Save yourself, Jesus. Three times Jesus was ridiculed for lacking the power to save because he stays on the cross. And yet the irony is just dripping off the pages. Because It's because he stays on the cross that he has the power to save. It's his death that has saving significance. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you were under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing. He's done nothing wrong. Do you hear that again? Jesus is innocent. Fifth time now it's affirmed. This time by the criminal on the cross next to him. The dying man recognizes that he was being punished justly, but Jesus was not. Verse 42, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Gosh, this is such an amazing scene. The criminal, he recognizes his own wrongdoing. And he recognizes that the man on the cross next to him is the king. He's dying next to Jesus. He's dying next to the king. And he asks him, remember me. He's asking for salvation. It's like when Joseph, back in Egypt, interpreted the dream for the cupbearer. He told him that he would be restored to his position with Pharaoh. And then Joseph said, when all goes well with you, Remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. Here the criminal on the cross next to Jesus, the king, asks him to remember him kindly in his kingdom. Verse 43, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise, it's the word that translates the Hebrew word for garden in the book of Genesis. It eventually came to refer to the blissful dwelling place of the righteous, the righteous who had passed on. The irony is amazing. Jesus is mocked for being unable to save and yet even while he's on the cross, he's doing what? He's saving a sinner. Have you been saved by this suffering Savior? Have you called out to this man on the cross to rescue you? Have you recognized your wrongdoing like the criminal and asked Jesus to remember you? The good news is that he can save you. This man's death was colored with the saving significance of the Passover celebration. Turn to him. Put your faith in the crucified king of the Jews and you can hear him say to you, you will be with me. In paradise. Is this man your king? I pray so. Verse 44 was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is the backdrop for Jesus' suffering on the cross. I think, as one person put it, it's the stage props for Jesus' death. So great. It's God's displeasure with these events that the sun refuses to shine. The creation order is supernaturally disrupted with darkness covering the land for three hours. And the center of Jewish religious life, the temple, is supernaturally disrupted as well. The curtain either to the sanctuary or the most holy place is torn in two. These are ominous signs, perhaps signs of God's judgment on the land or on the temple. Verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The son, having drunk the cup of suffering, puts it down empty. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. The centurion in the Roman army saw the darkness. He saw Jesus' exchange with the criminal. He saw the way Jesus died. And he glorified God by acknowledging Jesus' innocence. For the sixth time, for the final time, Jesus is innocent. Luke emphatically portrays Jesus as an innocent sufferer. It's recognized by Herod. It's recognized three times by Pilate. It's recognized by the criminal on the cross. And now it's recognized by the centurion. Verse 48, when all the people, not the religious leaders, who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, saw the same things the centurion saw, they beat their breasts and went away. It's an expression of grief, perhaps even guilt for those who may have shared in the responsibility of Jesus' suffering. Verse 49, but all those who knew him, maybe some of his family, friends, perhaps even some of the disciples, all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. The story ends, of course, with a member of the Sanhedrin going to Pilate. He asks for Jesus' body, wraps it in cloth, and places it in a tomb. And since the Sabbath day was coming, even though there were some women who wanted to further prepare his body with spices and perfumes, they decide to wait until after the Sabbath's over and then return to the tomb to finish What does Luke say about how Jesus suffered? What's the big idea? Jesus was persecuted and executed unjustly. He was an innocent sufferer. He was the righteous martyr. No matter what, Jesus was devoted to the will of God. If God's will meant meant unimaginable suffering for him, Jesus accepted it. His martyrdom is a model for all of his people. The question for you is are you ready to suffer for God's will like that? If doing God's will means losing your job, losing your friends, losing your marriage, or losing your life, Are you ready to say like Jesus did on the Mount of Olives? 22, verse 42. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Ask yourself honestly right now. Would you accept crucifixion? If you knew that's what God willed for you. Would you accept being fed to lions? Would you accept being burned alive at a stake? These were not hypothetical questions for our brothers and sisters in church history. In fact, some of our family in Christ still has to face questions like this today. You don't have to think hard to know your answer. You can tell how well you'd accept suffering based on how well you do it today. How well do you obey God's will when it costs you in a much, much less significant way than it cost Jesus. I can tell you this, if you won't talk with your family about Jesus, you probably will not die on a cross for God. If that's you, if you you don't see yourself so disposed to the will of God, so dedicated to the will of God, that you will accept any fate, even the most horrific suffering for him, don't be content to stay there. If you're not ready to lose everything for God, get to that place. Look to Jesus. The suffering king leads the way for his suffering people. We've had a chance to see Jesus together this morning. We've seen the who, the why, and the how of his suffering. Jesus is the king who suffered unjustly under the forces of darkness for his people's deliverance and for a new covenant if you've been saved by the suffering king, then you will follow in his footsteps of suffering. Let's pray that we would do that together right now. Father, in a sense, it's hard to even pray this because the suffering that we experience here for following you is so minimal. But I pray, Father, that as Jesus is the model martyr for us, I pray that we, as his people, as people of the Suffering King, would follow you into suffering. That just as Jesus was so dedicated to your will, I pray we would be dedicated to your will too. That we would be willing to give anything if it's what you desired. If it was your will for us. I pray, Father, that you would also help us to stand strong in the midst of temptation and trial by praying faithfully. We know that these movements in our heart can only be done by our spirit. I pray that we would strive with all of our might to get to a place of total dedication to you, willingness to suffer for you, and faithfulness in prayer to stand strong. Do this by your grace and for your glory, we pray. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.